If you want to find your place in your Bible at Philippians chapter 3, those of you that are online, uh, the verses will be there for you on the screens in just a few minutes, and you can follow along with me. This is the second part of a two-part message. It's really in our study of the book of Philippians, but I began this uh, message last week and didn't finish it, and I'm going to finish it today. And we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 11 today, and we're going to be thinking about what the Apostle Paul has to say right there. You know, one of the things that Mary and I have uh, enjoyed doing when we were traveling is on a couple of occasions, we've been privileged to go to the Billy Graham Library. I know that some of you have probably been there just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and we have stopped twice now coming back from different places uh, to be able to take a tour through the Billy Graham Library. You can't see it from the road. It's off of the Billy Graham Parkway, but you can't see it from the road. You have to turn down another road, and as you make your way a little further back, it sets back in the woods. It's a very peaceful, uh, very scenic setting as you go back toward uh, the library. When you go in the library, it's into a barn-looking building. They built it that way. It's supposed to be a farm setting, and you go into a barn-looking building uh, through the the glass cross, the doors, part of that glass cross. When you go in, there's a gathering area for you to get ready to take the tour through the library. You have to go past a mechanical cow that talks. A mechanical cow, better than Mr. Ed. A mechanical cow that talks, tells you a little story. Uh, Then you go into two or three different little theaters where there's video presentation about the life of Billy Graham and some aspects of his life. But after you get through those two or three theaters, uh, then you're dismissed out into a corridor that is very wide. It's on both sides covered with uh, pictures and memorabilia and Bibles and songbooks and uh, television equipment and all of the things that would have been a part of his life over the course of the ministry of his life. Pictures with famous people, letters from various individuals, all of those things, thousands of those kinds of things. And it, if you don't stop and read, if you were just to walk through and sort of gaze at the things that were there on the walls, they have cases, glass cases in the middle of some of these corridors. If you were just to walk through it, not, not stop and read some of the things, it might take you 30 or 45 minutes. If you stop and read, of course, it takes you whatever length of time you spend reading the different articles about the different things. When you get to the end of that corridor, there's another theater. You go into the theater for about 10 minutes, and there's a gospel presentation from Billy Graham. And given, people are given an opportunity to respond and to receive Christ as the Savior. And then you go out a couple of double doors, you out into a, a bookstore. I've bought some books out here in the bookstore. And over to the other side, there's a a country cafe kind of a thing. Some of the favorite food that Billy Graham used to enjoy, sandwiches and things that he used to enjoy. You can sit over there in that cafe. You can go outside and eat outside. It's 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 an incredibly beautiful place. When you see all this memorabilia, you see all of these, quote, trophies of the life that he lived, the ministry that he had. It's an incredible thing to witness. Once you begin to leave, you go outside, there's a, there's a brick house. Uh, it's his old house, the, the house where his parents raised him. And they moved that house from its uh, original location uh, to that new location. And uh, they uh, have opened it. So you can go through, you can see antique furniture from the period of Billy Graham's life. You can uh, see family pictures. They have a lot of family pictures of people that... Uh, 
you might recognize people that were part of his family. You might not recognize since they're part of his family and not yours. Uh, but people who are in those pictures and just some interesting things inside the house. And then when you leave the house, there's three or four trails you can take. These trails are out that like garden trails, takes you out uh, through some beautiful gardened areas. Um, and those trails ultimately, if you follow them all the way, which we have, we follow them all the way, they take you by the Graham's graves, takes you by the graves for the Barrows and for George Beverly Shea. And you're able to spend time out in these areas, places to sit, enjoy the outdoors if it's warm enough to do that, to be able to sit and enjoy the outdoors and, and just enjoy the beauty. There's music playing uh, all along the trails. There's music inside and music uh, in the cafe. It's, I mean, it's just an incredibly beautiful place. But we would think of it probably more like a museum, a place where the trophies of uh, the life that come from the life of Billy Graham have been gathered. So you're pretty familiar with those kinds of places, museums, trophy rooms. Almost every major sport uh, has a Hall of Fame. Uh, Cooperstown, you can go see the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, Canton, Ohio, where Mary and I have been, you can go see uh, the uh, Professional Football Hall of Fame. St. Augustine, Florida, you can go down and see the Professional Golf uh, Hall of Fame, places that you can go. Almost every major sport has a place like that where they gather the memorabilia, the trophies, uh, letters, and pictures from especially some of the famous athletes, some of those who've had significant accomplishments. You know, you have to get voted into the Hall of Fame. Nobody's been calling me, asking me if I wanted to be in the Golf Hall of Fame. Just haven't had any of those phone calls. I mean, you have to be voted into someone, or you have to win your way into some of those things. But you go in, if you've ever been in one, you, you know what I'm talking about? You look at all these trophies, all of these accomplishments, all of these incredible things that these people have experienced, the people that they've gotten to know, uh, people that they've been around, and, and they're, they're fun places to go. You relive history, you remember these moments. So for the next few moments, because you know what I'm talking about, for the next few moments, I want to take you into my imaginary, my imaginary trophy room. I brought one trophy. I have one trophy left from my years as a kid playing golf. This is uh, from 1973, the Georgia State Junior Championship winner of my division. It's not very pretty anymore because I don't take very good care of it. I only kept it, threw everything else away, only kept it because I might have to melt it down one day. Uh, silver is about $24, $25 an ounce. I may have to melt it down one day in order to, 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 to uh, be able to pay for a sandwich. But I, I have to bring it out every three or four years just to remind you there was a day that I could do more than I can do now. But I want to take you into my imaginary, are you with me? My imaginary trophy room for just a few moments. And I want to show you the trophies from all of the tournaments that I won when I, won when I was a much younger man living in Georgia. I take you first past the Masters Trophy, because, of course, I had to win the Masters Trophy. Uh, got it from the Augusta National Golf Club. That's the, sort of the granddaddy of the trophies in the, in the room. And I want to make sure that you, you see it. It's behind glass. It's got the lights shining on it. I got my picture made with the people from the Augusta Ma National Golf Club. Then I want to take you by my PGA Trophy. Uh, they had the PGA Championship at the Atlanta Athletic Club one year. And uh, I've got a trophy from uh, having won that tournament. It's over in another little area, back in an area behind glass, got the lights shining on it. It's all pretty. Everybody can see it, all the pictures that go with it. And then I take you by my trophy from the Bell South Classic. It's 
one that I won at the Eagles Landing Golf Club on the south side of Atlanta, uh, down where one of my sisters lives. And uh, I, I won that, that trophy, the Bell South Classic. Of course, I'd want to take you out by the East Lake Country Club. I've been there and played there when I was a kid. East Lake Country Club, where they hold a player's championship every year. I've got a trophy from there. I won that one as well. I want you to see that trophy. And of course, there's one other that's in the room. It's uh, from the Atlanta Classic. Uh, not played anymore, but it was played when I was a kid growing up at the Atlanta Country Club. We got to go and uh, be a part of that and win it. I'm telling an imaginary story here. <laughs> and win, and I, I got, got that trophy. Got all the pictures, got all the memorabilia to go with it, all of these things, all these silver cups, all of these expensive things, all of it in light, all of it in this incredible room. You walk in, and everything's there, and it's all you know, con- temperature controlled. Everything's just, just beautiful. While you're looking at these things and you're gawking at them, because you'll look at them and you'll wonder how in the world could our pastor have ever won all those, all those championships, um, I, I decide to tell you that, you know, some other things you need to know about me, and that, that is that my great-great-grandfather was Bobby Jones. <laughs> if you don't know who Bobby Jones is, we're in, we're in big trouble. Uh, the only golfer to win uh, the Grand Slam uh, of golf uh, he's my great-great-grandfather. Of course, Arnold Palmer is a distant relative of mine. I uh, didn't know if y'all knew that or not, but he's a distant relative of mine. And, and of course, Jack Nicholas is one of my dearest friends. Uh, you know, we're, we're like this. We're like this. Hey, this is my dream, and I can dream as big as I want to dream. Right? This is my imagination. I can imagine as much as I want to imagine. And I take you into this trophy room with all of these trophies and all of these pictures and all this memorabilia. And you're looking at it, you're gawking at it, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I knew our pastor was awesome, but now I know he's awesome. <laughs> then I look at you and I say, I want to take you to another room. It's not anything like this room. Everything in this room is about my accomplishments, but what I want to take you to is a room that's about something that someone else did for me. And the reality is, in this next room where we're headed, what you're going to see means more to me than everything else that you've just seen in this room. As a matter of fact, everything that's in this room, you can sell it. You can, you can melt it down. You can take it and you can melt it down. You can get rid of it. You can destroy it. You can throw it away. None of it really matters to me. Because where I'm going to take you in this next room, this is where what really matters to me can be found. I lead you into a room. It's another room. It's not anything like the trophy room. There's no glass. There's no fancy cases or encasing. There's no lights that are showing, except on one canvas, large canvas. Painted on that canvas are the three crosses on the hill of Golgotha. Uh, An empty cross, obviously, all empty crosses, Jesus' cross, empty. In the background of this painting, you can see the empty tomb, the garden tomb. It's just a little ways away. If you've been there, you know it's not far from the place where Jesus was crucified. And you can see the empty tomb. And we stop there and we stand in front of this painting for just a few moments. And and I look at you and I say, this is what matters more than anything else in life. All of the other trophies are just metal, wood, can be melted down, given away, sold, destroyed, but now this. It's a very humble room. Uh, there's nothing extraordinarily beautiful about the room. Uh, it's a very nondescript looking kind of a room, but all of the focus is on that center cross that's empty. 
and on that tomb that's empty. Now, you might think, you know, you pastor, you've lost your mind. But what I want you to try to get with me, what I'm trying to draw for you is a picture here of what Paul is about to tell you in the text of Scripture we're going to read beginning in verse 4. He's going to because he's forced to do so. He's going to take you into what would have been his trophy room. All of these trophies that came to him by way of his ancestry or came to him by way of his accomplishments. They would have been encased in glass. They would have had lights shining on them. It would have been a beautiful room with pictures and lots of memorabilia in it because this is the trophy room of the Apostle Paul. This is his Hall of Fame room. This is his library. But then he's going to take us out of that room and he's going to take us down to another room. In that other room, he's going to show us what really matters to him in life and what should really matter to all of us in life. We we begin in verse 4. The Apostle Paul picks up his argument. He's just told them that they need to rejoice in the Lord, that they need to resist in verse 2 and 3, need to resist all false teaching. But then he comes in verse 4 and he's going to tell us that we have to rely solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. There were those who had come to Philippi or maybe were already there or were coming to Philippi that were called Judaizers. And here's what the Judaizers said, as I told you in the last message. They said, it's great that you put your faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. You've got to obey all the ceremonies and all of the laws, all of the rituals of the Old Testament law. You've got to follow circumcision. You've got to do all of these things because it's not enough just to have faith in Jesus. You've got to have these works to go along with it. And of course, you know, whenever you add anything to the grace of God, you've canceled grace. And so the Apostle Paul, these people bragged about their accomplishments. They bragged about how good they were. They bragged about all of their trophies. Look at my trophies. And Paul's going to stop here and he's going to say, if anybody has a reason to brag, let me take you to my trophy room for a moment and let's brag together. By the way, if you look through this particular passage, you go on, you'll find that Paul is going to use three different word pictures. And I'm grateful that Paul drew graphic pictures, graphical pictures for us to be able to sometimes understand what he was saying. Over in chapter 20, he uses the picture of an alien, somebody who's not at home. He's passing through a country, and he's headed toward his citizenship. If you look back in verses 13 and 14, he uses the visual image of a runner or an athlete who is pressing forward. He's stretching out to cross the finish line. But when you look at this particular passage, It's not just a trophy room that he's going to talk about. He's going to come to us like an accountant, like a bookkeeper. And he's going to do the math. He's going to draw a column over here. We would call this the trophy column, the credit column. And then he's going to draw us another column. He's going to call it the debit column. Then he's going to give us the bottom line. And listen to what he says, verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. I mean, if these guys can brag, I mean, I can brag about the flesh, what I can do beyond faith in Christ, if that's what we're going to do. He goes on, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more. And now he takes us into his trophy room. He starts making a list in the credit column on this sheet of paper where he's doing the math. He says, circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel. By the way, these things don't seem all that important to you and me because we're not Jewish. 
But if you were a Jewish boy, you'd understand how important all of these things are that he's about to talk about. You and I can replace these with whatever we think is important in this life. Take us, to take us to your trophy room, whatever you're trying to put in that trophy room. But the Apostle Paul says, in that trophy room, I was circumcised the eighth day. That means he wasn't a proselyte to Judaism. Remember when Ishmael, his distant relative, was, was uh, circumcised when he was 13 years of age? If you were a proselyte, you would have to, at whatever age as a man, you would have to be circumcised to come into uh, this uh, obedience to this aspect of the law. But not for, not for the Apostle Paul. He was born into this. This comes to him by way of his ancestry. That's something about which he's proud. That's a trophy that's in his trophy room, that's in the credit column of this bank sheet. He goes on, of the stock of Israel. He comes from one of the families of Israel. Uh, he's gonna, you're going to see in a moment that he comes out of the tribe of Benjamin, but he comes from the stock of Israel. He's Jewish through and through. He's not Samaritan. He's not of mixed uh, background, of mixed ethnicity. He comes strictly out of the out of the children of Israel. You remember Jacob had 12 sons? And the, the Jewish men would love to trace their heritage back to one of those 12 sons. It's very, very difficult since the destruction of the temple. And, you know, those genealogical charts are all gone. It's very difficult for a Jew to do that today. But every Jewish man wanted to be able to trace his heritage back to the tribe that is the place where he originated, his family originated. He says, I, I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm not a half-breed. I didn't come from a, rix, a mixed ethnicity. He goes, goes on and says, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the tribe of Benjamin. You say, well, Benjamin. He was the youngest of the sons, you remember? Benjamin was special. He was the only one of the 12 sons of Jacob that was actually born in Canaan, the promised land. If you remember reading through the book of Judges, you'll remember that Benjamin had a, a team of 700 men that were elite fighters. They were all left-handed. So all you left-handed folks, here's hope for you. They were all left-handed. They were a part of an elite group of fighters. They were known for their bravery. They were known for their courage. I mean, Benjamin was special. He was in the territory of Benjamin where uh, the city of Jerusalem was located. The holy city of Jerusalem was located. And when the nation split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, only the tribe of Benjamin remained loyalty, loyal to King David's tribe, the tribe of Judah. And so when he's talking here about being of the tribe of Benjamin, by the way, the first king of Israel came out of Benjamin. What was his name? Before David, what was his name? His name was Saul. And so Benjamin was a very important tribe, a very special tribe, a very revered tribe. This is a trophy in his trophy room. This is something that he's putting on the credit side of the column as he's doing the math about his, about his life. He goes on, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he hadn't been Hellenized. To be Hellenized means to take on the Greek ways, the ways of the Roman world. I'm a Jewish man. I'm following the Jewish ways of life, the Jewish traditions of life, the Jewish rituals of life. I've not become Hellenized. I speak the language of the Jews. I, I, he could speak more than one language, by the way. But I, I speak the language of the Jews. I don't just speak the language of the Greeks. 
I don't just live. I don't live according to the customs of the Greeks. I live according to the customs of the Hebrews. That doesn't seem big to you. Hey, these people that are listening to Paul talk, I mean, they're gawking at the trophy room. Look at that man. Look at that. And he's putting all of these things in the credit column of his life. And then he moves from those first four things, which are related to his ancestry, to things that he accomplished. He says, concerning the law of Pharisee. When you and I think about the Pharisees, we don't think positively about them because we have a full picture of them. But in the first century, the Pharisees were one of the most respected religious bodies of the day. They were fastidious about the law, about obedience to the law. They, they even went so far, so fastidious about the law, that they added their own rules and regulations because they figured if they could create a buffer between the person and the law, that the person would never get close to breaking the law. So they created these rules and regulations that were a buffer between the law, and they sought to obey them. Now, we know that a lot of the Pharisees were what? They were hypocrites, but not all of them. They were highly respected. He was a part of a body of the day that everybody looked up to, was a part of something. It would have been a picture, a, memora a memorabilia, a picture in his uh, hall of fame taken with a group of people that everybody would have looked at and said, wow, you're a part of them? He says in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Remember where Paul was going on the road to Damascus? He was hunting down Christians, wasn't he? I'm not just somebody who talks about it. I don't just talk a good game. I mean, I practice a good game here. I'm going after Christians. I see them as a threat. I'm doing everything I can. And every Jewish person would have looked at him and said, go after him, yes, go after him. And that would have been something in his trophy room, in the credit column of his life because he persecuted the church. And then he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, blameless. Now, he doesn't mean sinless. He means that I've sought to obey the law. I'm not one of those hypocrites that you and I are so familiar with in the Pharisees. I'm one of those who sought to obey the law. And furthermore, when I have failed in some aspect, I have followed, I have followed the sacrificial system that is required for the cleansing of my sin, so that I stand before the law as one who is blameless. I have followed it. I am blameless. And he's making this list. He's, he's working like a bookkeeper, like an accountant, like a CPA. He's making this credit list, all of these things that accrue to his life by ancestry and by accomplishment. And by the way, had he not been saved, he would have continued to add to those accomplishments. He would have continued to add to his trophy room. Do you see his trophy room? You say, as a Gentile, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Well, you put in that room whatever means a lot to you. Whatever you think is so vital and so important that, that makes you different than everybody else. And put that in your trophy room and invite people to come in and look through the glass and see all the lights that are shining and show them all of the things by ancestry and accomplishment, things that you've done. The Apostle Paul moves from the credit column now to the debit column. I want you to pay attention how many times he uses the word count, loss, or gain. He's speaking like he's doing the math. 
And he's going to move everything in the credit column. He's going to move it to the debit column. He's going to take you out of the trophy room where everybody gawks at what they're looking at. And he's going to take you into a rather nondescript room, into a very humble setting. And he's going to show you an empty cross. And he's going to show you an empty tomb. Verse 7, but... Here's the change. Let's move out of that room. Let's go to a different room. But what things were gained to me, what were over here in the credit column that everybody thinks are so important, these I have counted. You follow the words? Gain, count, loss. These I have counted loss for Christ. Wow. Everything in that trophy room that I just told you about that everybody brags about and everybody wants to see and know, they don't mean anything to me anymore. Everything that an accountant would write is credit to my account that would make me something, make me wealthy. He says, that's nothing. Actually, I move all of that from the credit column over here to the loss column. Verse 8, yet... Indeed, I also counted all things loss. All things loss. Think about it. Think about what the Apostle Paul lost. Uh, he, he lost uh, the respect of the intellectuals of his day and many of his friends, if not all of his friends. He lost the security of a home and was constantly traveling, sharing the gospel. He lost the comforts and the conveniences of life, and he suffered continually throughout his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. He lost the ability to be taken care of. He could have been wealthy by that standard, by the first century standard, but he had to work bivocationally as a tent maker just to be able to pay his expenses. Gain and loss. I mean, if he lives over here in the credit column, in the trophy room, he would have had more than enough to live on. But he moved all that to the lost column, and he took people out of that trophy room and into another room. And listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Why does he count all of those things as lost? For, here's the reason, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, because the only thing that matters to me anymore it's not what's shiny and glittering and makes everybody gawk in the trophy room and in the credit column. The only thing that matters to me anymore is Jesus. That's the only thing that matters. He goes on, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Hear the words? All things. Now listen carefully. And count here it is, count, loss, gain, count, loss, gain, and count them as rubbish. Oh, listen, I, I don't even want to translate that word for you. Some translations use the word dung. He's referring to human excrement or animal excrement. He's talking about what you shovel up from the barn after the animals are out. I mean, that's a picturesque word. Maybe not so picturesque. <laughs> but that word draws an extreme picture for us. What do I think about my trophy room? What do I think about my column of credits over here? He says they're like excrement. They're like dung. 
they don't matter one bit. You can sell them. You can melt them down. You can give them away. You can destroy them. They don't matter. The only thing that matters is the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he continues, and, and, be found in him, not having my own righteousness. That's what the Judaizers were doing. Oh, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you've got to do, and you've got to obey, and you've got to uh, do this ceremony. You've got to follow this ritual. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to come under the law. And they were able to brag about their accomplishments. Paul says, I don't want anything to do with it, not having my own righteousness. Not having what's in the trophy room, not having what's on the credit column that I'm moving to the lost column and calling it done. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but here's what I want. That which is through faith in Christ. Can I just stop here for a moment? The only way you can ever be righteous, righteous enough to be able to enter into the presence of the Almighty God, is that you be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that the righteousness, the perfect, sinless righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account. And you stand before God, not in anything you have done, because all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And you stand before the holy, righteous God, clothed in the only righteousness that could have ever gotten you into heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. And how did you get that righteousness? Righteousness by faith, by faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And why, why does the excellency of the knowledge of Christ mean so much to him that everything else is like dung, human excrement, animal excrement? Well, why is it such that he wants nothing to do with self-righteousness. He only wants the righteousness that comes from Jesus and is credited to his account by faith. Why is it, he says, that I, verse 10, that I may know him. Do you know what that means? To know him means to know him by experience. I don't want him to just be a figure in my head that I know about and I have details about. I know a lot about famous people. I watched a I watched a documentary just uh, this past week on somebody famous. I know a lot about that famous person, but I don't know that famous person. I have no personal experience with that individual. I have no fellowship with that individual. I haven't walked with him. When I think about what he's saying here, that I may know him, I can't help but think of Enoch in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that Enoch did what? He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The old story is that he walked with God so much and so often that one day they were walking together, and God said, Enoch, why don't you come home to my house instead of yours? The Apostle Paul says that I may know experientially him. Jesus isn't supposed to be just a theory. He isn't supposed to be a theory at all. Jesus is supposed to be a personal experience every moment of every day that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the power that raised him up. I want that power at work in me. Did you know that the power that raised up Jesus is in every believer through the presence of the Holy Spirit of God? 
the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the partnership of his sufferings. I, I want to I obey him to the place that people see Christ in me, and even if they persecute me, I consider that an honor to be persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ. He says, being conformed to his death. And then he finishes out, he says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You say, Pastor, he's been through all of this about wanting to know the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, to walk with him and have his power at work in him and to suffer for him, that he doesn't want his own righteousness. He wants that righteousness that comes to him by faith in Christ so that everything else in his life, all of the trophies, all of the credit column, all of that is just like dung, human excrement. It means absolutely nothing. It's absolutely worthless. It's all moved out of the credit column into the debit column so that the bottom line is that the only one who matters is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who matters to me. By the way, before I talk to you about verse 11, do you see what Paul is doing here? Paul is telling us that the center of every goal of his life, the center of everything in his life is whom? It's Jesus can I just remind you that that's the way it's supposed to be for every one of us, this preacher included? Everything we do, Jesus is supposed to be at the heart of it all. At the heart of it all. He's moving, he's moving his ambitions and his goals from what was in his trophy room and in the credit column that gets moved to the debit column that is nothing but dung. He moves his goals away from the selfish, self-centered goals of life, and he says, the only thing that I want to pursue is Jesus. I want to pursue him above everything else. Oh, what a revival that would bring in America if every one of us took that spirit and that attitude. But Paul comes in verse 11, he says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You mean after Paul has said all of that, he's not even sure he's going to be resurrected? That's not what he's saying at all. He gets to that last verse, and it means one of three things. It either means that I want to live until the resurrection, to, to the rapture of the church when all of the dead will be raised, or I want to experience that resurrection power that resurrection from the dead, that power that will raise them. I want to experience that in my life. Or as I think he's saying here, I think he's being humble at this moment. And even when it comes to the resurrection, he says, I don't want anything about the resurrection to be th for anyone to think that I have earned it or that God owes it to me. I don't deserve it, but I just want to be a part of it. And he's expressing his abject humility and saying, I, didn't, I, I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. I didn't do something that he's, he's going to bestow it on me because he's seen it in me. Or because he's seen some trophy that I've won. I just want you to know that I only have it because of the goodness and the graciousness of the God of heaven. That's the only reason. And everything that Paul is saying, it's about Jesus it's about Jesus. 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 Our lives are supposed to be about Jesus. You see, when you live according to this legalistic measurement that so often people have, you know, 
like the Judaizers who said, well, faith in Jesus is good, but it's not complete. You've got to have this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that that's added to it. It's all a work of your flesh, stuff, stuff that you've got to do. You understand when you live according to that legalistic measurement, all it does is it steals the joy out of your Christianity. By the way, you don't have Christianity when you do that. You have some kind of a man-made religion because Christ Jesus died for our sins and offers us a gift that is free and is received not by anything that we do, but by everything he has done, and we receive it through the channel of faith and faith alone. And if you're resting on anything other than Jesus, whether it's for salvation or whether it's for your sanctification, being set, a, set apart every single day. If you're the kind of person who says, okay, I, I know I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior, but I'm working hard every day. I'm working hard every day, working hard every day. You've missed it. It's not about working hard every day. It's about resting in Jesus every single day, saying, Jesus, you have to live your life in me, and you have to live your life through me. The power of the resurrection has to be at work within me and through me. Because if you're resting on anything else, it's like holding fool's gold in your hand. That pyrite, it's like holding fool's gold in your hand. It may look genuine, but the reality is it's not worth anything. I'm not saying we shouldn't have halls of fame. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a Billy Graham library. I'm not saying that I'm not going to bring my trophy back to show you again in a year or two. I'm saying that our lives are supposed to be focused on Jesus, and Jesus is everything. And if our hearts aren't pursuing Jesus above everything else, we're resting our faith in something other than Jesus some other legalistic measurement that's only going to steal your joy. It's going to steal your joy. Take it away. Listen, I've been there. I understand. I know. It'll steal your joy over and over again. You can only trust Jesus. You can't trust in anyone or anything else. There was a news story in April of 1988 in that particular evening, the news reporter was telling the story of a skydiving photographer. It's a true story. Skydiving photographer. And this photographer jumped out of a plane along with two other skydivers to film their skydiving expedition. This film clip that's taken by the photographer shows the skydivers falling, and then suddenly they open their chutes. These two open their chutes, and as you've seen, it's as if they're being yanked back up into the sky. But the reporter tells us that and shows us in this, this video that suddenly this film clip starts jerking totally out of control. And the reporter goes on to explain that the picture becomes chaotic because at that moment the skydiving photographer had reached for his own ripcord only to discover that he had forgotten to put on his parachute. He had already had two skydiving photograph sessions. The first one he had his parachute on, no problem. The second one, he almost forgot it. You say, how could a man ever forget his parachute? Because the uh, camera equipment that was strapped to the back of his body was in a harness that was a lot like the parachute harness. Somebody saw it the second time. They said, hey, get your, get your parachute. But the third time, nobody saw it. And he jumped out of the plane with a backpack that was only full of camera equipment. It looked like a parachute, but it wasn't a parachute. 
And there was nothing those other two could do except watch that man plummet all the way to the earth and die. That skydiving photographer trusted in something that was not worthy of his trust. (laughs) Y'all like Andy Griffith? Every kid growing up today should be made to watch at least the first five years of the Andy Griffith show with his or her parents because they taught a moral in most of those stories, which very few TV programs or films do unless they teach you an immoral lesson. But one of them is about a man who lives on the edge of town. He's poor. He can't keep his house up. Everybody's concerned because people are coming to Mayberry and they have to go by that old man's house. And they don't like them. They have to see that house before they get into Mayberry. Not a very good image. They discover this man has some old cash that he's been holding on to. Everybody gets excited. They think he's got money. Everybody's now catering to him. They're all going to him. This man's acting like he's really wealthy and he's really rich and everything's great until somebody finds out the cash that he has is Confederate cash. Do you realize that at the end of the Civil War, there were a lot of people in the Confederacy that held on to a lot of cash that the very next day, after the Emancipation Proclamation, that cash meant nothing. It was worthless. It was worthless. We got trophy rooms that are full of our accomplishments from our ancestry and from the successes of our lives. Everybody looks at it and everybody brags about it, but it's all dung. comes to knowing Jesus Christ and having faith in him and the righteousness that comes from him. What are you trusting in today? You've got to trust in Jesus.